Jesus, in the beginning of John chapter 9, has, been, has left the temple really fleeing for his life uh, because there is a mob inside the temple picking up stones, getting ready to execute him for the things that he has said and taught. As he flees for his life, his disciples ask him, this man born blind by the side of the gate here, this one who is uh, always calling for alms and who is dependent on the whole community, whose fault is this that he was born blind? Was it his fault? Was it his, his parents' fault? And Jesus says it was neither. He was born blind because ultimately... I have an appointment with this man, and that appointment is right now. This man was born blind so that the works of God, verse 3, might be displayed in him. This man is going to become, in his weakness, in his poverty, in his limited constricted place in this culture at this time, he is going to become a display of the glory of God and the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He heals the man, and from one point of view, ruins his life. Because we are talking about Two outsiders in this story. One outsider is Jesus. As we just noted, he's so much an outsider that what he teaches inflames the religious authorities of his age. And in the first century, at the time of Jesus Christ, the world was headed in two different directions, just as our world is. It was headed deeper in the direction of narrow religious codes and identities that exclude and define by bigotry and hatred and that, uh, that are designed to build up people's sense of identity through narrowness. And then uh, in another pattern in the first century, there was another movement in society to open up people's identity and to teach what were then and are still today cutting-edge philosophies that say, let's get rid of all of that narrow bigotry. Let's achieve our full potential as human beings. Let's become who we were meant to be. Let's realize our full humanness through wisdom and philosophy and in John's time, Jesus' time, through the philosophy of Gnosticism. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Jesus is an outsider to both. He doesn't fit the narrow identity, or not just of the Jews, of any narrow religious identity defined in those ways. He doesn't fit the broad Greek Gentile philosophical identity. He's not cutting edge. He's neither one. So he's an outsider in a double sense. So here is Jesus, the outsider, encountering the blind man who is an outsider in his own society. He is frozen in place, as we have said. They had a box for him in the ancient world, and it was not just this society. It was every society, every ethnicity in the first century had a stratified, hard and fast place for everyone. And you stayed in your box, and you did not leave it. The label was stuck on your forehead and you never peeled it off. So this man's a beggar. He's born blind. He's stuck there. There is nothing that is going to change his place in this society. He will not contribute to society. He will never be one of the producers. He will never be a decision maker. He's a beggar. Our society is the same way. As open as we think we are, we have boxes for everybody, just like every society has. We're just a little more sophisticated in the way we do it. And so here is Jesus and this man born blind. And the minute 
Jesus heals this man. This man sees for the first time what is happening around him in that street. He sees his neighbors. He sees his parents. He sees friends and loved ones. And the very day he begins to see them for the first time and all of that joy comes into his being, they turn their backs on him. And as we saw last week, not only his neighbors bring him before the authorities uh, in the temple, specifically the Pharisees, but uh, his own parents, when they are called as witnesses in a public hearing to get to the bottom of what happened in this scandalous miracle, when they call his parents, his own parents won't stick up for him because they're afraid of the social, religious consequences of what they might say if they say that Jesus healed their son of blindness. So on this man's first day of sight, he sees Jesus, and he also sees everyone around him turn their backs on him. And many of us might be in the same exact position, where coming to Jesus Christ has actually displaced you from the place you had in life. And you don't necessarily relate to the people in your life, your family, your social set, the people at your work. You don't relate to any of them the same way you did before. And that displacement has made you a double outsider, just like this blind man. People in in this time coming to Christ today can feel very alone because they see something of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Like this blind man, they see a bit of light coming through and they may not understand very much. They may not know very much about him, but they see he is gracious, he is good, he is faithful, and I want to follow him, but I can't get anybody to listen. Who do I go with? Will anyone follow him with me or am I following him by myself? And this is the the essence of the problem we're addressing in this series, that we have outsiders in this story. Jesus, the outsider, the man born blind, the outsider. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 24 through 34 and see how this public hearing progresses. They have made no progress, the Pharisees, in determining what happened here, at least not in a way that suits their agenda. They want to portray Jesus as a sinner, but they can't figure out the way in this instance to prove it. They tried the Sabbath day, they couldn't get agreement about that, And they've tried the parents, putting pressure on them. They couldn't get the parents to say anything definitive. This morning, they're going to try yet another tactic. They call the man born blind a second time. And the insiders interrogate the outsider. Let's look at how this goes. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. How ironic. He's already given glory to God. Jesus said before he'd done anything with the man, I'm going to glorify God. This man was born blind so that his life would be a display of the works of God. So, Jesus intrusively spat on the ground, made mud with his fingers, took the mud, and plastered the man's eyes with that mud, told him, go wash in the pool, so that everyone would see this man following these directions and coming back with his sight. A transformation so dramatic, they can't even agree that it was the same guy. 
So the miracle itself has already glorified God. The man himself in the hearing has already glorified God by saying, Jesus told me to do this and I came back seeing. So God has been glorified up to this point on this day in this man's life. Here's the crazy thing. God is being glorified. The light is shining in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it, has not grasped it and cannot overcome it. There's resistance. And the darkness in this case is trying to figure out a way to escape the acknowledgement of the glory of God. It's shining at them. It's practically blinding them, but they will do anything they can to avoid saying, yes, that is the glory of God. So this is a tremendously ironic thing that they say to this man as they continue their hearing into his healing. They make a demand of him. Give glory to God, they say. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. That's interesting. They haven't been able to prove that up to this point. They haven't been able even to agree on why he is a sinner. And that pattern is going to hold whether it's Jews trying Jesus in public or Romans trying Jesus in public, no one will be able to agree on exactly what he has done wrong. And so every ethnicity gets involved throughout representing really the whole world in trying to establish Jesus is a wrongdoer and they won't be able to do it. They can't do it here. But Nevertheless, they make this statement and what they're saying to this man is give glory to God by acknowledging what we have found. Jesus is a sinner. In other words, get back in line. Get back in your box, beggar. And stop making claims about what God has done in your life. Knock it off. We have established that Jesus is a sinner and the way you give glory to God is by agreeing with us. That's the demand that they are making. I just cannot escape the parallel with today. Not only... um, outside the church where people I find come to Christ, they see his power and his glory, and then they realize this doesn't line up with anything that anyone says morally, spiritually. I just saw Jesus save me. I just saw him Cleanse my conscience. I have peace for the first time. And now you're telling me not to say that he is the only way to salvation. Because that's not permissible. That's not approved. That's not acceptable. So it's not only true outside the church. Lots of people have experienced that. It's true in the church. It's true among Christians where we have decided who Jesus is and we have a box for him. It is a box that is conveniently supportive of our lifestyle and worldview and we want everybody to stay in line and not make claims that Jesus has done anything to get us out of the box we belong in. And uh, I experience this as a pastor uh, fairly frequently. Once very early in my ministry, I had just arrived at a church, and uh, a man came in, made an appointment to see me, and he basically said to me, this is the doctrine you need to be preaching to these poor, lost, and confused people in this church. You need to preach this doctrine, and if you don't, Sonny boy, I was 28 at the time, and I looked like about 13. If you don't preach this doctrine, 
God will not answer your prayers. That's pretty interesting. That's an interesting move to make in your first appointment with your new pastor. So what is he saying? He's saying, this is the doctrine that I like. This is my favorite one. This will save everybody. So you preach that or God will not answer your prayers. I've figured that out for you so you don't have to do any thinking about this. Just preach what I tell you to preach. That little maneuver is taking your favorite thing, putting God's name on it, and then enlisting God's power, grace, whatever it may be, to confirm what you have already decided. That's what this man was doing. Another word for this is idolatry. So, it was a relatively brief meeting. (laughs) I said, you know what? These people know God. They have the Holy Spirit. When they pray, God answers their prayers. Our God, the living God, the true God, does not hold our prayers hostage to our righteousness because we are righteous in Jesus Christ. So there's the door. Never saw him again. Praise God. Um, Here's the funny thing. I agreed with that man about the doctrine that he loved. The doctrine he loved was true. Did you see what he did with it? He made a new God that only blessed people based on that one thing alone. This is how insidious religion is. And it happens outside the church. That's very obvious. But what we don't see so much because we're blinded to it, we're habituated to it, is how it happens to us. How we make the boxes, God fits in our boxes, and so does everybody else. So what the Pharisees are doing here is is not a uniquely Jewish thing. It is universal. And the Pharisees are here to show us and, in John's hands, to show the Greeks and the Romans and all the Gentiles, you are exactly like this. You may think you're sophisticated and cutting edge and you're so much bigger than all of that narrow religious stuff. You are the same. And that's why he tells us this story. So um, they are making this demand of this man. And the man replies, verse uh, 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. You didn't say why. You didn't cite a law. And I'm not a witness to any of his sins, so I can't really speak to anything you just said that you knew. By the way, that's a very wise thing to say and highly appropriate um, in a public hearing like this. This is telling us that here's this man dressed in rags, receiving alms, gifts in the dirt by the side of the road going into the temple and you have a shrewd legal mind at work in that blind man. Isn't that interesting how people surprise you with what's down inside them once you let them out of the box? So, and there's going to be a lot more from this guy. So, uh, he says, I don't know, I've can't say whether he's a sinner or not. Here's what I am a witness of. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I know that. I know I didn't see one ray of light until the light of the world showed up and opened my eyes. Physically opened my eyes. So that's his answer. And it sends the Pharisees uh, back to a time-honored tactic 
uh, when you're fishing and you want to discredit somebody, just make them repeat their story a bunch and see what you can manufacture from the inconsistencies. So they say, verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Well, they're not going to get very far with this. Verse 27, he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. I already told you what he did. I told you about the spit and the mud and how he put it on my eyes. I told you about the pool, and I told you I came back seeing. I've already told you that story, and then you spent the rest of the day interviewing everyone you could get your hands on to try to ascertain whether I was the same guy as the blind man who sat there. You didn't get anywhere with that. You tried even my parents to get them to say that I wasn't born blind or that this man who can see is not our son. You tried that. You didn't get anywhere with that. So I've already told you the story and you would not listen. I love this. You would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? What possible reason could you have in a public hearing for demanding that I repeat my story? Maybe you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> we, we get a, a, a little glimmer here that they've ticked off the wrong guy. This does happen from time to time. It happened in 1517 when the Roman Catholic Church ticked off a guy named Martin Luther. And it's happened a few times since then. All of a sudden, somebody gets the microphone and they're not reading from the same script. And they're not going to go back in their box. So I'm very interested here in, in verse 28. And they reviled him. What does that mean? It means they called him every name they could think of. They just heaped scorn on him. This happens today. Um, somebody told me this week about a conversation they had last Sunday about the things that we are talking about here. And uh, as he was talking to his friends, uh, about who Jesus is and what he has done, what he has done in his own life. Uh, his friends just basically shouted him down and said, you're the one who's in the box. You're the one who's inflexible, intolerant, bigoted, hateful. They reviled him, called him a bunch of names. I think that's really interesting that these people in your life would call you inflexible, intolerant, and bigoted when you're saying, Jesus saved me out of my old life and I have been changing ever since. I have been softening ever since. In this case, this man has been saved out of drugs and alcohol, has been saved out of crime, has been saved out of false religions. And so when they come at him saying, you're the one who's intolerant, inflexible, narrow, he's saying, what are you talking about? You haven't changed nearly as much as Jesus has changed me. Let's talk about flexibility. Let's talk about softening. Let's talk about that. So this kind of thing is, is still going on. To get this man back in the box, they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Well, this man is of no account. We don't know what school he got his diploma from. If he got his diploma from any school... Maybe he just got it from some internet academy for rabbis. We don't know where he comes from. We can't vouch for him. So since we can't vouch for him, he's no good for you either. We don't know where he came from. That 
triggers open defiance from this man. It triggers an outburst that is a classic in the Bible. It is, these are some of my favorite verses in all the scriptures. And it is at this moment that this beggar, probably still dressed in rags, probably still covered in the dust of the street, comes out with a devastating statement of what is wrong with the most elite schooled people in the country. This is, if you want to talk about speaking truth to power, this is it. So they reviled him saying, we don't know where this Jesus comes from. We know Moses. So the man seizes on that admission. And here we have one of the things I love about the Bible. Sarcasm. Verse 30, the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he came from. Yet he opened my eyes. See what he's saying there? You don't approve. You say he's a sinner. Yet I didn't see any one of you stopping even to pray for me as you left the temple, much less stopping to put your hands on my eyes and heal me, give me physical sight. I never saw any one of you do that. To be sure, you don't know where this guy comes from. And you're not coming from the same place. So he says, yeah, you don't know where he came from, yet he opened my eyes, and then he makes this argument. Now, I just want to pause at this moment and take a, a little rabbit trail. It's not much of one, but it's slightly off topic. They say they're the disciples of Moses. And it interests me, what did Moses tell Israel was going to happen in the future? Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, God is going to send another prophet like me. Because when you, Israel, heard the voice of God from Mount Sinai, you thought you were going to die. And you said, make it stop. Moses, you speak for God and we'll listen to you. We need an intermediary. Somebody who can stand between us and the holy God because if we hear his voice any longer, it's going to kill us. And God said, yeah, they're right. So Moses is that intermediary between the holy God and Israel. And Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be another one like me. Exactly the same, exactly the same function. God is holy. If you hear his voice directly, it will kill you. Because the people are not holy. So you need an intermediary to, with God's words in his mouth to say what God says. And Moses says, you'll listen to him. We know some things about prophecy concerning that intermediary. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 29. Heath uh, put me on to this last week, and we've been going back and forth about this all week. Isaiah 29. I just want to read a little bit to you. Pick it up at verse 10. Isaiah 29:10. The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. He's made the leaders blind. Verse 13, the Lord said, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, 
Therefore, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Drop down to verse 18. In that day, when the Lord does all these wonders, and the prophet that Moses predicted when he comes, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The interesting thing that uh, we are pondering, Heath and I, about the Old Testament is we, we really can't think of an instance of a blind person being healed until the ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30, uh, chapter 35 of Isaiah, just one more example of this. When that prophet comes, Moses predicted wonderful things are going to happen. Pick it up of Isaiah 35, 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You know what the ministry of the Pharisees, the priests, and the scribes was supposed to be to the weak in Israel? Be strong. Don't be afraid. Because God is going to come. And when he shows up, his power is going to save you and deliver you. Well, what does that mean? Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Prophecies that the Pharisees in John chapter 9 knew were looking for and missed. So back to John chapter 9. The man has said, this is amazing. You don't know where he comes from? You know Moses? You know Deuteronomy 18? You know Isaiah 29? You know Isaiah 35? And yet you don't know where he comes from? And he opened my eyes? What is wrong with you? You know, you can read your Bible. Can you apply it? To any real situation right in front of you? This is some of what he is saying. And in saying that Jesus made his blind eyes to see, he is probably making the stark claim, he is Messiah, he is the prophet of Deuteronomy 28, he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. So here's how he proceeds. He states a premise, verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. A couple of things about this. First of all, he is laying down a premise that if Jesus is a sinner, God would not listen to him because God does not listen to sinners. And that is true. The only reason God listens to us is because we have a righteous mediator who speaks on our behalf. And so when the Father hears that mediator, he's hearing our voices through the voice of Christ. And that is the reason he listens to us. This premise is absolutely true. The we is interesting because of what he's replying here to what the Pharisees said back in verse 24, give glory to God. We know that this man is a a sinner. 
We insiders, we've got this worked out. He's a sinner. And the blind man, man who used to be blind says back to them, we know that God does not listen to sinners. This is, in one sense, more sarcasm. It is more pushback. It is out-and-out defiance. And part of what he is saying is, who's we? And who do you think you are, you insiders who have all the answers? Think of this. This beggar has nothing to stand on but who Jesus is and what he has seen. That's it. And yet it enables him to go before Congress and say this. Here's the most important thing about that little word in verse 31, we. Who's we? This isn't just sarcasm. The we certainly is not all his neighbors. He's not saying, all my friends and I We know that God does not listen to sinners. That's not the we, because they all turn their backs on him. It's not his family. Certainly not them, because his parents would not back him up. So when he says we, he's not referring to his lineage or genealogy going back in Israel's history or even to his immediate family at that time. That's not what he means, because they're not on his team explicitly on the record. So who's we? This man already sees himself as part of a different community. And what community is that? The community of all the other beggars, demon-possessed people, blind, mute, even people from the grave women with diseases, children of synagogue leaders raised from the dead, those people. We make up a new people and we know already that God does not listen to sinners. This man has a new community yet and and he doesn't even necessarily know it yet, but he already starts to see himself as part of a different people, which is a good thing. So he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. That's the premise. Verse 32 states a buildup to his conclusion and it's, it's a buildup that opens this beyond Israel. And in John's hands, telling this story about Jesus and the blind man being outsiders to Jews, he is telling this story to Gentiles all over the world. His movie, The Gospel of John, is being distributed in theaters empire-wide. And so when this man makes this next statement in verse 32... It raises this to a new level for John's audience of Gentiles. Never since the world began, the world, the cosmos, all nations, whether they're Jew or Greek, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. And John is writing this to Gentiles who would say, ah, these physical miracles, who cares about that? What we really need is philosophical illumination and wisdom. This man who's born blind, his physical blindness isn't his real problem. What we should really care about is the illumination of his inner person. That's the cutting edge way to look at this. And John is saying... No, Jesus isn't on your team either because he cares about the man's physical sight. And this man is saying, never in the history of the world has it ever been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind like me. You just saw something that no one in any generation, in any language, in any place, at any time has ever seen before. So given that premise and that buildup, 
the conclusion is in verse 33, and it's airtight. If this man, Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. I'd love to see the stenographer sitting by the side taking notes on this. You getting this, buddy? So he, that's, his, that's his testimony. This is open defiance. He is saying that the leaders of his day do not know God. And he is saying that on the basis of his own experience of Jesus Christ and his own sense and knowledge. I have a new community of people and those are the ones I identify. We know what we know and it comes from Jesus Christ. And so, verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us got a box for you. Your blindness proved that you were a sinner and that you came from sinners. You suffered because you deserved it and now you want to teach us who God is? And they cast him out. That doesn't mean they kicked him out of the room. It means they kicked him out of the synagogue, which is the same as saying, you are no longer a citizen of our nation You are no longer in our family. You are dead to us. They cast him out. He is officially a non-person in this society. You say, is that uniquely a Jewish thing? No, it's no different from any other society in any place in the first century or in most of the world. When you're out, you're out. We're going to pick up the story next week and we're going to see these two outsiders reunited. We're going to see what Jesus says to the man who he healed. But for now, I want to ask you a couple of questions. We're focusing on that issue of your faith in Christ putting a separation between you and the people around you. It's painful. It's extremely isolating. And so these questions are aimed at that kind of problem. First, if Jesus Christ has told me who I am, if my identity is with him, what other identity do I need? Why would I need a political identity, a gender identity, a racial or ethnic identity, if I am in Jesus, is there anything that adds anything else to me? Now the question, of course we can all predict what the right answer is. It's kind of a leading question. But I'd ask you to think about this. What identity are you hanging on to? that you want to keep while you follow Jesus. Because the, this issue of identity is one of saying, I am not saved because of anything about me as a person. I am not saved by any trait that I have. I am not saved by any goodness that I have, nothing that I've done, nothing that I have inherited. I am only saved by Christ. And I'm asking you, what else do you need? What else is going to purify your conscience? What else is going to give you peace? What else is going to set you free? What else is going to heal you? I have found that every other identity that I try to cling to gets in the way of who Jesus is and who I am in him. And so it's all got to go. I become his and his alone. So I would ask you to consider that question carefully. And then this, this next question. Many of us have experienced rejection from our loved ones or from uh, maybe not our families, but from people who we care about and love. There's some inside crowd that has frozen us out over this issue 
and we have felt it. And one of the questions that we have is, what about them? Those insiders, whatever form that takes, will they be saved? Will they come to a knowledge of Christ? And my question is very simply, if you can trust Jesus to save you and to glorify God in you, can you trust him to glorify God in your loved ones as well? I'm calling upon you today, based on the work of Jesus Christ, trust God for those you love who may not go with you on this new journey. He can speak to them too, and he may use you in that process in some way that, that we can't predict right now. So I would encourage you to think about these two questions, and I would say that at this point, we are at the heart of the gospel. This is at the core of following Jesus, following him, though none go with me, only to find that thousands, tens of thousands, millions have gone with you, and now you have a new family with them. And we are bonded together in Jesus Christ. We will wrap this up next week. Let's pray right now and I'll answer some questions here. Lord Jesus, again we call upon your name. If there is someone here who has not made peace with you. And your spirit is drawing them, drawing prayers out of them. And if that person starts praying like this, Jesus, forgive me. Live in my life. Lead me. Cleanse me. Give me healing. Make me over again. As they pray these things, I pray that you would pour out grace and power into their life at this instant that they would know who they are with you and that they would begin to give you glory for everything that happens in their life. I pray that you would bring them salvation right now. For those of us who have forgotten the essence of following you, we pray for the same work in a different way. As we call out to you saying, Lord, I need to follow you even though it looks like I will lose everything I value, treasure, people that I love. Take me, use me. As we pray these things, we ask for your spirit to respond with power and grace and peace. We pray it in your name as our great high priest. Amen. Uh, looks like we have a few questions here. Uh, let me take a look at them. Okay, uh, interesting historical note. A man named Tobit in the Old Testament Apocrypha is healed of blindness. Heath, you got that? We got to look into that. Note I would make about that is uh, the Apocrypha are books that uh, have been added over time to the, the canon of Scripture. And uh, you'll notice in our Bibles, the Apocrypha are not there. That doesn't mean they're worthless and have nothing to offer. It just means we don't believe they are Scripture. But uh, that is an important note. We'll look into that. We'll see what we say about that. Um, question. Could this man have been full of the Holy Spirit? Uh, according to John 4, yes. Because in John 4, Jesus says to another outsider, a Samaritan woman, he says, the Father is out there looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the whole concept here that Jesus is working with is, I had an appointment with the woman at the well, John 4. I have an appointment with this man born blind in John chapter 9. This is all set up by God to display his glory and his works. 
And so the Holy Spirit is deeply a part of all of this. Uh, We're going to see next week that there comes a moment that is definitive in this man's life and that Jesus pushes for this moment. Uh, And so that does come, and I believe ultimately the man's adoption as a child of God, filling of the Holy Spirit, all of those kinds of things would have happened uh, in his later encounter with Jesus. So stay tuned uh, for that. A very good question. When the interrogators refer to themselves as disciples of Moses and that they do not know where this man comes from, is that the confirmation of the prophecy that no one will know where the Christ comes from even though they know Jesus came from Galilee? Or is it more of a, con- of a coincidence? Uh, very good question. It is not a coincidence. Um, for for um, the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel to say, we don't know where he comes from. They are fulfilling Isaiah chapter 6. Seeing, they don't see. And hearing, they don't hear. They're fulfilling Isaiah 29. The Lord has pulled out a, poured out a, a spirit of sleep on the prophets, on the, on the leaders. They're blind. And so, uh, yes, that in itself is a fulfillment of prophecy. When uh, the Pharisees became angry and claimed that they knew that the man was a sinner and that he was born in his sin, if they believed that sin caused him to be born blind, aren't they confirming that the miracle did happen? Is it their story that that showed the inconsistency while they were trying to get the man to show inconsistency. In other words, if they're admitting that he was born blind and born in sin and that the judgment of God was upon him, now that he is healed and can see, aren't they being inconsistent? Yes. Simple answer, yes. And that's not going to be the last time we see that. Jewish leaders, Roman leaders... They're, just, they're going to be casting about for any bit of mud that they can throw at the wall. And uh, they're just looking for something to stick like other people we know. Um, and so uh, that is a key part of this story. Very good questions. Um, I'm going to call a halt there. Uh, and so let's pray once again. Lord Jesus, I ask for your blessing on each person here, that as we leave this place, that your spirit would go with us and that you would display the works of your Father and our Father in us. And we will give you all the glory as your people. And we pray it together in your name. God's people said, Amen. Amen.